Episode 57, The American Enlightenment and the Great Awakening. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Well, last episode we surveyed the 13 original colonies, as they were, at the start of the 1700s. And as I mentioned, a lot happens in the 1700s. And as I mentioned two episodes ago, one of the things that was happening at this time in Europe was the Enlightenment, which was in full swing by the beginning of the 1700s. The Enlightenment had a big effect in Europe, but its expression in the colonies was different. Like I said last episode, the group of people who had migrated to the American colonies was a fairly well-educated group to begin with. The first generation was usually someone or groups of people who had been educated in England and had been strongly influenced by both Reformation and Enlightenment thinking. The ideas of the Reformation and the Enlightenment, especially the idea of liberty of conscience, as far as religion goes, were part of the reason that many of these people immigrated to Americas in the first place. Remember, it wasn't an easy journey. It was often expensive, and it meant leaving behind their old lives, careers, and social networks. So it was a big deal to pack up and go, and many of the people who moved to the colonies did so at great personal cost. And they did it because they believed so strongly in the ideas of liberty of conscience and of political liberty, and in the vision of creating a new society that was focused on the way that they wanted to pursue their religious beliefs. So part of what I want to do in this episode is trace some of the Reformation and Enlightenment ideas that shaped the thinking of the American colonists. But I also want to talk about another thing, another key thing that happened during the mid-1700s, which strongly influenced the social values and thinking of the colonies as well. And that is the Great Awakening. I'll come back to the Great Awakening after we look at the Enlightenment ideas, but I'll say for now that the Great Awakening was a huge spiritual revival that took place from about 1735 to about 1770, so some very formative years in the colonies, and it affected all 13 colonies. So these ideas, Reformation, Enlightenment, and Awakening, they are all intertwined in the worldview and the mindset of the American colonists in the 1700s, and they will all together inform the values and ideas that end up driving the American Revolution. So let's start with the ideas of the Reformation. In fact, let's go all the way back to Martin Luther. Luther believed, at least on paper, in the separation of church and state, and also liberty of conscience. He wrote, Over the soul, God will let no one rule but himself. Therefore, where temporal power presumes to prescribe laws for the soul, it encroaches on God's government and only misleads and destroys souls. We desire to make this so clear that everyone shall grasp it and that the princes and bishops may see what fools they are when they seek to coerce the people with their laws and commandments into believing one thing or another. So what Luther's saying here is that neither the church nor the government can make rules telling people what they had to believe. That was between each person and God alone. 
This is liberty of conscience, right? It's that no one else can tell you what you have to believe. And Luther went on to say, we are subject to governmental power and do what it bids, as long as it does not bind our conscience, but legislates only concerning outward matters. But if it invades the spiritual domain and constrains the conscience, over which only God must preside, we should not obey it at all, but rather lose our necks. So now, Luther's advocating civil disobedience and even martyrdom, rather than letting the government tell you what you had to believe, at least as far as religious belief goes. So why is it, though, that the church and the government try, in the first place, to legislate belief? It's a control thing. It's in part to combat heresy, but it's also to control the people so that everyone's believing the same things. But they're trying to combat heresy because they think it's dangerous. But Luther also said about this, heresy can never be prevented by force. Heresy is a spiritual matter, which no iron can strike and no fire can burn, no water can drown. Luther wanted both the church and the government to allow liberty of conscience. Interestingly, though, once the Lutheran church became the state church of Germany, it was much less tolerant of other religious groups, people who weren't Lutherans. It's part of the reason why Geneva, Switzerland, became an important center of the Reformation, as scholars and church leaders who wanted more reform than they found in Lutherism left Germany and went to Geneva. In Geneva, John Calvin also spoke about liberty of conscience, but one of his more important contributions was the firmly founded idea that humans are inherently sinful and corrupt and need to be redeemed by a relationship with God. Now, I can't stress how important this idea is, and particularly how important it was to the colonists. There's a couple ways that you can see human nature. You can see humans as basically evil but needing redemption, as Calvin did. Or you can see people as basically good, as did many utopians, like many of the people behind the French Revolution. You can also see people as a mix of good and evil. Or you can see people as just mostly criminals who need to be controlled. Or you can see humans as basically just animals, like Hobbes and the utilitarians did. And here's the real key thought. How you see humanity's basic nature will determine, almost inevitably, what kind of government you try to create. If you see humans as basically good, like the French revolutionaries did, you'll try to create a government that is egalitarian and it's idealistic, trying essentially to create a utopia where everyone's a brother and everyone's a king. And ultimately, the government of the French Revolution was undone by the ruthless instincts of people in power to destroy their enemies. And that's a pretty succinct summary of the entirety of the French Revolution. But it also points to the idea that people are sinful and corruptible. However, though, if, like the American colonists did, you see humans as basically sinful and corrupt and needing redemption, you will create a form of government that acknowledges this with things like the rule of law, checks and balances, and separation of powers, as well as state sovereignty and guarantees of individual rights, all of which are designed to keep any one person from becoming too powerful or too corrupt. Or, on the other hand, if you see humans as basically animals, 
you'll create a government designed to control and pacify the population, which I think is a pretty succinct summary of most of the modern governments today. Calvin did not see people as animals. He saw us as sinful and corrupt, but needing redemption. And needing to be redeemed by God gave us value. He also believed that each person's beliefs were up to them and not up to the government, not even up to the church. Calvin makes the point a couple of times in his writings that if the government is trying to make you violate your own conscience, you have the right to disobey that government. And the guy who followed Calvin in Geneva, Theodore Beza, even taught that armed resistance to the government, if the government's tyrannical, is morally and biblically justified. Going back to Calvin's view that humans are sinful and need to be redeemed, the answer to the basic problem of humanity isn't better or more government. The answer is that each person individually needs to be redeemed and then become right with God. And only then, as a redeemed sinner, are you capable of following what is right and good instead of moving towards more corruption and more evil. And one of the side effects of this view among Reformed Christians and among the colonists was that they had a view that their leaders and politicians ought to be people who were mature Christians and were aware of their own and others' inherent tendency towards sin and selfishness and corruption. In other words, you don't want to put into power a person who isn't also fighting against their own corruption. You want someone who sees in himself and in the government, a tendency towards corruption and tyranny, and rather than embracing the power that they have, they are supposed to actively resist it and try to do what is right. Unfortunately, those are not the kind of people that politics usually attracts. At least not today, anyway. But like I've said before, there's a very unique group of people that came together in the late 1700s in the colonies that became the American Founding Fathers. Now going back to Calvin once more, it's important to point out here that most of the French Huguenots were Calvinists, and they also had believed very strongly in liberty of conscience and the right to resist tyrants. But as I mentioned back in episode 48, which was on the Counter-Reformation, nearly all of the Huguenots were driven out of France, in part because of the Edict of Fontainebleau, which was signed in 1685 by King Louis XIV, and it ended all of the rights of Protestants. So most of the Huguenots left France, and they ended up in England, Holland, or Switzerland, and a few ended up in the colonies. So when the French Revolution rolls around about 100 years later, that sort of Calvinist point of view about humanity was almost completely absent from France. On the other hand, that point of view permeated the colonies. Meanwhile, back in England, other Enlightenment authors were also writing on this theme. One of the more influential books, at least in the mind of the colonists, was a book called Lex Rex, which was written in 1644 by Scottish Presbyterian and philosopher Samuel Rutherford. Lex Rex literally means law, king, or more clearly, the law is king. It was written as a refutation of the idea of divine right of kings, and it was a clear and easily followed defense of the idea of the rule of law. That is, that no one, not the king, not the bishops, not Hunter Biden, no one was above the law. The law should apply to everyone equally. 
This book was studied widely in the early colonial universities, and anyone training to be a lawyer would have read it. And by the way, many of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were trained in the law. In an interesting coincidence, Rutherford wrote and published Lex Rex while he was a Scottish representative to the Long Parliament in London. The Long Parliament called itself into being in 1643 when King Charles refused to call a parliament. So while Rutherford was writing Lex Rex, the Long Parliament, which was meeting in Westminster, was also writing the Westminster Confession. So at the same time, the Westminster Confession is being written and Lex Rex. They're going on simultaneously somewhere in Westminster. Now, the Westminster Confession is not often seen as part of the Enlightenment, but it's a key piece of the Reformation, and it's hard to overstate how influential the Westminster Confession was to the American colonists. So, what is the Westminster Confession? It is a very, very long statement of faith describing the essential beliefs of Reformed Protestant believers. It's written as a catechism, that is, it's a series of questions and answers that was meant to be memorized by the learners who are usually students. In the colonies in the 1600s, the only piece of literature that was printed more than the Westminster Confession was the Bible itself. In many places, it was part of the basic school curriculum, and in New England, students had to learn it by heart. It was required by law. Agreeing to the content of this Confession of Faith was an entrance requirement for both Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. And yes, there's a clear contradiction here. The Catechism itself teaches liberty of conscience, and yet learning it was required by law in some places. But despite that contradiction, it was an incredibly influential document in the colonies and also among the Protestants back in England. But in the colonies, Ben Franklin, who probably would not have actually fully assented the Confession himself, made a bunch of his early money off of the printing of an edition of the Confession. He printed thousands of copies of it in 1745. Is one of the things that was printed very, very widely in the colonies. It was, in a way, a kind of bedrock set of beliefs in the colonies, a kind of common ground like television is a common ground nowadays. And even though there were many things that people didn't assent to or many people who didn't fully assent to it, it was kind of one of those things that nearly everybody knew, and it had a huge influence on the worldview of the people of the colonies. Now, the next Reformation Enlightenment thinker that made a big impact in the colonies was John Locke. After being stranded on the island after the big plane crash in episode one, John Locke began to take charge of the survivors. Oh, wait, sorry. Not that John Locke? Okay, other John Locke, the English philosopher and author. Right, gotcha. I mentioned Locke back in episode 54 on the Enlightenment because his books and theories were very influential in England and the rest of Europe, but they were also extremely influential in the colonies. Locke himself was a son of a Puritan minister, and though he might not have been as puritanical as his father, he was a very serious Christian, and he even wrote commentaries of his own on the New Testament. One of Locke's most influential ideas was his description of liberty of conscience. He felt that government should not have any influence over people's religious beliefs and should not force anyone to believe anything. He felt that the truth of Christianity, as he saw it, would win over other things out there in the marketplace. It would win people over on its own, and that only false religions forced their views upon people. And in applying that principle to government, he wrote, 
No person whatsoever shall disturb, molest, or persecute another for his speculative opinions in religion or his way of worship. Now, those words are actually from the original constitution of the colony of Carolina, which Locke helped write. And this idea that the government should not force a religion on anyone, but should also protect religious liberty and liberty of conscience, was an idea that took deep root in the colonies. And as I also mentioned back in episode 54, Montesquieu came along later and he built upon some of Locke's ideas and he wrote The Spirit of the Laws, or De l'Esprit des Lois, in which he builds up the idea of separation of powers. This is the idea that each branch of the government should be limited and should have very clearly defined powers. And this is in part to prevent the kind of corruption that John Calvin had been talking about. These ideas will strongly influence the Constitution. One last thinker I want to mention here was an English writer named Algernon Sidney. He published a book called Discourses Concerning Government in 1670. I bet you didn't know that this is the most quoted book in the writings of the American Founding Fathers, other than the Bible. In it, he developed the social contract idea, the idea that government is derived from the consent of the people, not because some watery tart lobbed a scimitar at you. He followed other reformers in believing in the idea of covenant theology, which is the idea that at times God makes covenants with his people. This happens several times in the Old Testament and is in fact the very root of the word testament. The idea of the New Testament is that God has made a new agreement, a new covenant, a new testament with his people based on what Jesus did for us all on the cross. And Algernon Sidney expands on this idea and he says that the government works the same way. It's based on an agreement between the people and the government, a kind of testament. It's a way of explaining the idea of social contract. And Sidney clearly makes the point that both the law of God and the law of nature allow and even encourage people to resist a government that has betrayed its agreement with its people. It's in part because of this idea that Thomas Jefferson later suggested that the Constitution ought to be nullified and then re-agreed to every generation. It's a contract between the people and the government, he thought, and if there's new people, well, it makes sense for them to reaffirm that agreement but we did never take up that idea. We probably should have. But Sidney's point, and it's echoed in Locke as well, is that if people don't feel like the government is holding up its end of the contract, the people have the right to abolish that government and make a new one. Do you remember this line? I quoted it back again in episode 54. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such a government and provide new guards for their future security. That is from the Declaration of Independence itself, and it's an expression of the colonists utilizing the ideas of Locke and Sidney to justify their actions. They are saying in the Declaration, it is their right, it is their duty to create a government that is looking out for them rather than trying to oppress them. And then the declaration goes on after that to explain the many ways that the English government has been oppressing them. But I'm getting ahead of myself again, as I do. One last and very important thought from the ideas of Algernon and Sidney and the idea of covenants. The Puritans and many of the other non-Anglican believers in the colonies 
They saw themselves as covenant believers, and they saw themselves as trying to be the new covenant people of God. Many of the colonists saw themselves as trying to establish something like a new holy land, a new city of God on earth. It was not just a social or political undertaking for many of them. It was a profoundly spiritual religious task, and many of them took this idea very seriously. And even those who didn't, who were more secular in their worldview, understood that this was part of the social fabric of the colonies. And that idea of the social fabric of the colonies gives us a nice segue into the Great Awakening. The outlook and the ideas of the Enlightenment had a big effect on the worldview and social fabric of the colonies in the 1700s. But another thing that happened in the colonies was a huge set of religious revivals that touched nearly all of the 13 colonies. And this religious revival, or set of revivals, is known as the Great Awakening. Starting around 1735 and lasting until the mid-1760s, a profound religious and spiritual revival took place starting in the central colonies and spreading both north and south. There was a revival going on in parts of England at the same time, and several English preachers came to the colonies, including John Wesley and George Whitfield. John Wesley founded the Methodist denomination, which was originally an offshoot of the Anglican Church in England. But when he came to America and preached and started churches in the colonies, the denomination took on a very distinctly American character, much less churchy and formal and very stripped down to the basics. George Whitfield, on the other hand, didn't start churches. He just preached to very large crowds. He had a booming voice that could carry a long way, which was important back in the days before microphones and speakers. He preached from New England down to Georgia to some of the biggest crowds that had ever been assembled in the colonies, and many people who listened to him recommitted themselves to following Jesus and began to go back to their local churches, many of which they had drifted away from. Church attendance picked up, as did the reading of the Bible and the Westminster Confession. Wesley and Whitfield were from England, but one famous part of the Great Awakening was from New England. His name was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in Massachusetts, and he became friends with Whitfield. He also preached to large crowds himself, but mostly in New England. He wrote a great deal, and he became the colony's first recognized sort of homegrown theological scholar. He's the author of the famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is a pretty long and dark sermon full of the imagery of hell. Apparently, a lot of Edwards' preaching was kind of like this. But it had a huge effect. People either converted from non-belief to being believers in Jesus, or if they already believed, they recommitted themselves to their faith. And Edwards became something of an early American celebrity. In fact, it's possible that the only other American person more well-known in the colonies before the Revolutionary War was Benjamin Franklin. Edwards himself looked upon what was happening as a distinct, unique work of God, something very different from what had been going on in the years before, different from the usual reaction of people to the good news of forgiveness. Edwards, other Christian writers of the time, and other preachers from the Great Awakening described the Great Awakening as an unusual movement of God, and they ascribe it to the work of God rather than to any kind of human teaching or preaching. 
And since the Great Awakening happened nearly in all parts of the colonies, it tied the people of the colonies together in new ways. It was, in a way, the first America-wide event that all the Americans somewhat shared in. It gave people a kind of religious common ground, and it fueled the ideas of the need for repentance, and of the colonies being a new holy land, and of the colonists themselves being God's new covenant people. And these ideas, this imagery, were in the hearts and the minds of the colonists as they began to consider whether or not they needed to leave their English roots and rebel against one of the most powerful nations in the world. Next episode, we'll look at one other America-wide event before we look into the actual revolution. And this other event helped shape the outlook and character of the young colonies as well, and it created some of the first American heroes. Join us next week as we meet young George Washington when we look at the French and Indian Wars. (laughs) ¶¶